Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumble.org. Today is Palm Sunday, and we're all familiar with this day. It's a, it's a day that we celebrate that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the crowds received him with a royal welcome, laid palm branches in front of him. It's the beginning of Holy Week. Palm Sunday goes to Maundy Thursday when, when Jesus and his disciples shared the Lord's Supper, and then Good Friday when Jesus was arrested and tried and convicted and then ultimately crucified. And finally culminates on Easter Sunday when Jesus rises from the dead, triumphant over, over sin and death. And Holy Week can have a sense of inevitability to us. We, we know where it's headed. And so as we start Palm Sunday, we're thinking about Palm Sunday in light of Easter Sunday. And because of that, it loses some of its suspense, at least for me. And we need to remember that for those who witnessed these events firsthand, the crowds that were there on Palm Sunday, it was anything but a sure thing. They didn't know where this was headed. It was dramatic and tense for them. They weren't sure what was coming next. Only Jesus himself knew where Holy Week would go. That's got me thinking about March Madness. It's March Madness right now. Some of you basketball fans. Christina, my wife, loves March Madness, and she especially loves the underdog. And so she's been cheering for Oral Roberts, right? Oral Roberts was this 15 seed, busted everybody's brackets last week, made it all the way to the Sweet 16. And last night they played Arkansas. Arkansas was a three seed. And Christina was, was cheering for Oral Roberts. She was excited. We watched the first half of the game at, at Jerry and Karen's house, went home, tucked the kids in, and she couldn't even watch the second half. She was just too stressed out by, by this game. She said, I just can't handle the pressure. I, I, if Oral Roberts doesn't win, I'm going to feel so sad. And instead of watching the game, she pulled up the game cast, just the score update was all she could handle. And, and she said, if I knew that Oral Roberts was going to win, I would happily watch this game because I, I just need to know how it turns out. And you probably know Oral Roberts lost. They didn't, they didn't pull off the upset. They didn't make it to the Elite Eight. And so, so then she went and watched the highlights, right? She just couldn't, couldn't handle it. And we can slip into that mentality with Holy Week. We know where it's headed. We know Jesus wins. We know that he's going to die, but he'll be raised uh, from the dead, and, and so it loses its tension for us. We're, we're comfortable as we think about Holy Week because we know where it's headed. But again, those who participated didn't know. Only Jesus knew where Holy Week was headed. And so as we look at the beginning of Holy Week this morning, Palm Sunday, I want us to try to step into the shoes of this crowd 
to, to put ourselves where they were, not knowing what's going to happen next. What's Jesus going to do during these days? Let's look at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 21. Excuse me, verses 1 through 21. We're going to look at Palm Sunday and then the following day. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it back. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let, him, let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And, then, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because, of all, the crowd, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. This is Palm Sunday, Monday, and then Tuesday morning of Holy Week. The first thing we see in verses 1 through 10 is the king comes into his city. When we read about this donkey and these palm branches and these cloaks and this word Hosanna, that doesn't really make sense to us. We don't have a direct correlation. This is very outside of our cultural context. Nobody rides donkeys around here. Nobody has palm trees growing in their front yards. And so we need to unpack a little bit what's happening. It's not an immediate correlation for us. It can be a little confusing. But to the people who were there, to the crowds who were there on Palm Sunday, they understood exactly what Jesus was doing and exactly what claims he, he was making. When, when Jesus rode in on a colt, and a colt is a young donkey, when Jesus rode in on a donkey and 
people laid out palm branches and cloaks and shouted Hosanna. Everybody in the, everybody there knew what was happening. This makes me think about uh, a number of years ago, before we moved to Humboldt, I was living in Minneapolis. This was before Christina and I were married. And I was in, I was in downtown Minneapolis one Saturday, riding my scooter, because I was pretty cool. I'm riding my scooter through downtown Minneapolis, and a beautiful Saturday morning, and all of a sudden, traffic stops. Everybody stops, and a police motorcycle pulls in front of the intersection with lights flashing, tells everybody to stop, and everybody just kind of looks around, and then five or six black SUVs come rolling through. And behind these five or six black SUVs is this big black limousine with uh, American flags on the corners. And then five or six more black SUVs follow behind it. And everybody rolls down their windows, starts taking pictures, and honking. Who just drove by? The president, right? President Obama was in town. So I'm, I'm sitting there on my scooter, and I'm, huh. Apparently, the president's in town today, right? We, you, you recognize it immediately. You've seen the movies. You've seen it on the news. Maybe you've been there in person when the presidential motorcade passes by. That's something that we immediately recognize. And so it passes by, and I go home, and I look it up, and sure enough, President Obama was in town that day, and he was passing through downtown Minneapolis that morning, and I just happened to be there. But I, I understood immediately. That's what's happening here for, for this crowd. Look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32 through 35. This is the end of David's life. This is when David is on his deathbed, and he's transferring the kingdom to his son Solomon. Look at how uh, David transfers the kingdom. Verse 32. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my palace. And I have anoint, appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. Crystal clear what David's doing. Put, put my son on my royal ride, have him ride through town, have people say, long live King Solomon, then take him to the palace and put him on my throne and say, long live the king. Everybody understands what's going on here. And Jesus's crowds, the crowds on Palm Sunday, they would have known this story. They would have understood exactly what was happening. When Jesus rode in on a donkey to the royal city, he's making an announcement. And that, that helps us understand the palm branches and the cloaks. This is red carpet treatment. They didn't have the red carpet, but they had the palm branches and the cloaks. Uh, the roads into Jerusalem, of course, would have been dirt roads. They're dusty, they're dirty. And it's Passover week, 
So at, at Passover week, thousands of people would have flocked to Jerusalem to come celebrate the Passover together. You have these huge crowds walking in. It's dusty, it's dirty, but the king is coming and the king gets better treatment. When the king comes in, let's cover the ground with palm branches. Let's put cloaks down on the ground so that he doesn't have to walk through the dirt and the dust and the mire that we walk through. This is VIP treatment for Jesus. They're welcoming him in with the red carpet, right? The, the cloaks, that's like you see in the old movies when the guy's on the date with the girl and he takes his coat down and puts it over the puddle so that she doesn't get her feet wet, which makes no sense. That I don't understand. I, I've never done that for Christina, right? Just walk around the puddle. I, it's, it's easier, but that's okay. But they're showing him honor. This is the king. The king gets the good treatment. It would be better for my coat to be ruined than for the king's donkey's feet to get dirty, right? This is just that VIP uh, honor that they are showing Jesus. And Jesus receives it. He accepts that honor. And then they begin to shout when he comes in. Again, these are uh, pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. This is a religious festival. They're preparing their hearts for worship. As they journey in, they would have been singing psalms and hymns together. Just like at Christmas, we sing Christmas carols together to get ourselves ready for Christmas. They would have sung these hymns together, these psalms, to prepare their hearts for worship. And one of the psalms that they would have sung was Psalm 118, which I read as our call to worship. Look at what the psalmist says in verse 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That word Hosanna is just a translation of save us, Lord. They're, they're quoting Psalm 118 and they're recognizing that it's being fulfilled right in front of them. Save us, Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there he is. There's the guy who's coming in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. The Old Testament is full of this promise that a king would come from the line of David. Someone who was from David's family would come and replace David on the throne. David was the most powerful, most successful king in Israel's history. He had brought Israel to its, its greatest position of, of power and influence in the world. David was a man after God's own heart. And they looked for a king who would be like David and restore them to their former glory. And now here he comes, riding in as, on a donkey, and they welcome him. Welcome. Blessed is the one who comes to bring in the kingdom of our father, David. Save us, Lord. They're, they're welcoming him. They're eager for him to come in. So the point here in verses 1 through 10 is that Jesus is making his big announcement. Jesus is putting his cards on the table. He's revealing himself for who he really is. He is taking that claim of royalty. 
He is saying, yes, I am the Messiah, the King, the Chosen One. I am the one that's been promised in the Old Testament. It is time. I am the heir to King David's throne, and I'm coming to receive my kingdom. This would have been enormous news. This was an incredible event for those who witnessed it. And their question would have been, what's he going to do? Now that, he, now that the king is riding into his royal city, what is he going to do when he gets there? Verse 11, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. First, we see the king comes in. And then second, we see the king sees his people for who they really are. The king comes in, takes a look around, and sees his people for who they really are. Verse 12, 12 through 14, and then 20 and 21, is this strange story about a fig tree. And you read it and you think, why, is, why does Jesus get mad at a tree? And why does Mark even include that story? Mark is the shortest gospel. He's the most concise. He skips a bunch of details that, that Matthew and Luke and John include. For instance, we don't know anything about Jesus's uh, birth or childhood from Mark. He just skips a lot of those details and gets right to the point. And then he includes the story about a fig tree, right? You don't have time to talk about Christmas, but you want to talk about a tree? Mark, what did, what's going on? So we have to assume that there's a reason. Mark doesn't waste any space. And so why would he include this strange story about Jesus getting hangry and, and yelling at a tree? There's more to it than that. The commentators talk about this passage as a prophetic sign act. Jesus is making an illustration. Jesus is using the fig tree to help his disciples understand a larger truth. He's not just wasting this story. There's more to it than that. So what happens in 12 through 14 and 20 and 21 helps us understand what happens in the middle in verses 15 through 19. The, the tree on the front and the back helps us understand the cleansing of the temple in the middle. Let's look just for a minute at the fig tree to see the, the stage that Jesus is setting. It says that on Monday, after Jesus had rode in, he comes into the city. He's, he's on his way in and he's hungry, verse 12. Verse 13, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. We don't have fig trees around here, but apparently a fig tree would begin to grow fruit first, and then once the fruit starts growing, it would start putting out leaves. And so if you saw a fig tree and it had leaves, you could safely assume there's fruit on that fig tree. From a distance, Jesus sees this tree, and it's full of leaves, and so it's safe for him to assume there's figs on that tree. So he walks up to the tree, but when he gets closer, he realizes there's only leaves. There's no figs on this tree. This is like a Starbucks that is open but has no coffee. 
The, the storms that happened a month or so ago down in Texas, I, I remember seeing somebody had tweeted, they were stuck in Austin, Texas for three or four days during the storm, and they made their way from the hotel to a Starbucks, and they get there, and the Starbucks has, it's open, but it's got, you know, the, just the hastily made sign that you print off on the computer that says, sorry, no coffee. And so he tweeted a picture of that, and he says, what's the point? Right? I, I'm, I didn't come to Starbucks for a scone. I'm here for coffee. If you don't have coffee, just shut it down. Everybody go home. That's what Jesus is doing here. The fig tree has leaves. It's open for business, but it's got no, no figs. And so he tells the fig tree, he's talking to a tree. He, tell, he says to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. There we go. And then Peter, or excuse me, Mark pauses from the story. That sets the stage with the fig tree, and now he shifts his attention to the temple. Verse 15, they get to Jerusalem. Jesus goes into the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus walks into Jerusalem He sees the temple. The temple is open for business. It's Passover week. People are coming to prepare their sacrifices. The temple is open for business, but Jesus gets close to the temple, and what does he see? There's no worship. It's open, but worship is not occurring. You have all these people that are flocking to Jerusalem. They're traveling from, you know, perhaps several days' journey to get to Jerusalem, and they've come to perform a sacrifice. And you can imagine, it's not the easiest to travel with goats, or pigeons, or whatever animal you're planning to sacrifice. That's that's hard to travel with them. And so instead, they just bring money. These travelers would have carried money, and then when they got to Jerusalem, they buy the sacrifice for the temple, just because it's easier. And so the chief priests and everybody surround, everybody uh, affiliated with the temple, they see this as an opportunity to make money. Let's turn the temple into the marketplace. Let's allow these, these uh, merchants who are selling the, the tools for the sacrifice, the animals, the pigeons, the goats, whatever, let's allow them to set up shop in the temple courts. It looks more like a tailgating party than a worship service. These these pilgrims have been traveling for days. They've been preparing their hearts, perhaps praying and fasting, singing these songs to, to get ready to worship. And then they get to the temple and it's a bazaar. It's a flea market. It's smelly. It's noisy. It's crowded. It's not an environment for worship. It's an environment for people to make a quick buck. Jesus sees this and he cleans house. This is like a a parent coming home a day early from vacation and the kids are having a party, right? What's what's dad going to do? Kick everybody out, clean it out, and get angry. That's what Jesus sees. This is my house. And you are treating it like a flea market. He turns over the tables, kicks down the booths of the people selling pigeons, 
And verse 17, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. That's enough of this, Jesus says. It's not going to be like this anymore in my house. And I, I love that Jesus not only cleans house, he not only uh, disciplines and, and pushes people out for doing the wrong thing, but he also immediately starts teaching. Jesus' heart is not just this angry leader that just wants to, to hammer people, but he, he wants to move toward them. He wants to teach them the right thing for those who are willing to listen, for those who are willing to humble themselves and say, okay, I haven't been doing it the right way, so what would be the right way? Palm Sunday, the king walks into his royal city and then he looks around and he sees his people. He sees who they really are. And they're a mess. It's not good news. They aren't ready for him. They haven't been following him. He's, he's holy and righteous and good and his people have fallen apart. His people are not doing what he has told them to do. Jesus does that for all of us. Jesus comes, Jesus sees us for who we really are. We can't hide from Jesus. We can't pretend to be someone we're not. When I was in seminary, I had a classmate. My, my seminary, it's a, it's a small school, Bethlehem Seminary. Each class had 16 people in it, and we would take all of our classes together. So that, those 16 guys, were we were close. We knew each other really well, spent a lot of time together, got, got to know each other's families, ate, ate meals at each other's houses. We were, we were a close-knit group. And my third year of seminary, we found out that one of our classmates was essentially living a lie. He, he had been in, in classes with us, just one of the, one of the crowd, but he finally admitted, he finally broke down and confessed that he had been cheating academically. He had been plagiarizing and, and cheating to get, to get through school. And this had even gone back to college for him. He had gone to a small Christian school and he had cheated his way through college and now here he is third year of seminary and he had he'd been plagiarizing. And finally the guilt of that overwhelmed him and, and the Holy Spirit convicted him and he, he confessed. He, he came clean. And that, that third year of seminary, he admitted this. He was just broken by what he had done, just repentant, hate, hated his sin, so grieved over the, the lies, the way that he had hurt his family, the way he had brought dishonor on this school. And he received incredible grace from his family and from the school. They, they received his confession. They listened to what he had to say. And the school actually allowed him to stay in school. They, right, they could have just kicked him out and said, Get, like, you don't deserve to be in the school. You're, you're done. You're expelled. But instead, they allowed him to continue, but he had to start over. Imagine being third year grad school and going back to first year and start, starting again. So it was really hard, uh, really emotional time for him. But... He communicated to us, to his classmates, he, all he wanted to talk about was how free he felt and how relieved he was. 
He said, I have been living a lie for five or six years. People, don't, people haven't known who I really am. I've had to cover up what I've been doing. And for the first time, I just feel free. You really know me now. I have nothing that's hidden. And so I'm, I'm free. And, and, and I now, my, my relationship with Christ has been reconciled because I'm not lying to him anymore. That's what, that's what happens to, to each of us. We can fool ourselves and think, okay, I'm, I'm a good person. I've got it together. But Jesus looks at us. He says, just stop. Just, just be real. Don't pretend with me. You can't fool me. Jesus does that here when he cleanses the temple. And then he leaves the temple, verse 20, and goes back to the fig tree. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Do you get it? The, the temple appears to have life, but you get there and there's no, no authentic worship. There's no fruit in the temple. This tree appeared to be alive, but didn't bear fruit. And so Jesus cursed it. The fig tree is a picture of what's going to happen to the temple. The fig tree is a picture of what God's people deserve. They have no fruit. They have disobeyed. They are only worthy to be cut down and burned. This tree, Jesus has cursed it, and it's withered away to its roots. It's dead. It now looks the way that it is. The fig tree had looked alive, but was worthless. And now it's seen to be truly worthless. It's been cursed, and it's now good only to be burned up. Jesus' assessment of his kingdom is that it's a broken mess. That it's fruitless. It has the appearance of life, but nothing's really happening. His people are not prepared for him. They have not followed his commands. They have forgotten and rejected him. Which brings us to our final point. What's remarkable about Holy Week is that the king comes into his kingdom he sees his people for who they really are, and then he bears the curse for them. He takes the punishment that they deserve. Palm Sunday is, is Jesus riding in to receive his kingdom, and he should have just gone up, 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 up the rest of the week. More honor, more glory, more, uh, more praise. And instead, Holy Week is down, 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 down. Instead of receiving a grand welcome, Jesus is betrayed by one of his followers and deserted by every, everyone else. Instead of receiving praise as the king, Jesus is mocked as a fool and a blasphemer. Instead of honor that is due him, he's given shame. He's spit upon. He's beaten He's whipped until he bleeds. He's falsely testified against. Instead of a royal robe, he's stripped naked. Instead of a crown, 
He's given thorns and they're beaten into his skull. Instead of a throne in the place of honor, Jesus is dragged outside the city and hung on a cross. And instead of a palace, he gets a tomb. That's Holy Week. That's what the king does when he comes into his kingdom and sees his people as they really are. As we prepare for Good Friday and Easter Sunday, as you think about inviting people to come and and commemorate what happened, this is what you're inviting them to. This is the king that you're inviting people to follow. Not not this uh, powerful, mighty king who can't put up with any imperfection, but this humble king who loves us and receives us and moves toward us and stoops down to pick us up and bears our curse and our shame so that we can be made pure. Let's pray. Jesus, you are truly the king. You really are the heir of the throne of David. You really are the son of God who is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. You really do deserve the best. You really deserve full obedience. And we have not given that to you. We have dishonored you. We have run away from you. We appear to be fruitful, but when you scratch the surface, there's, there's really nothing there. We are weak and broken and rebellious. Thank you that you have borne our curse. That instead of, instead of cursing us so that we wither away to our roots, you yourself took the blame. You yourself took our sin on the cross. Our sin, our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.